Alleluia. Father, we thank you for the promise of this song that we have sung, among the others, which reassure us of the security of our souls upon the work of Jesus Christ. As he hung there in the place of ruined sinners, we who are dead in our trespasses and sin and deserving of the judgments of God looked upon our salvation, Christ crucified on our behalf, Christ in our stead, Christ is our Lamb who is slain perfect and without spot and blemish, crucified in the, before the foundation of the world, in the mind of God Almighty, fulfilled in time in the incarnation upon the cruel cross of Calvary. Lord, as we look to your scriptures that proclaim these truths prophetically from ages past and mark their fulfillment, the days of gospel, when the gospel, Lord, was going forth and, that you, and your proclamation to the lost and those who had ears to hear proclaim the message of the kingdom. And as we see in your scriptures, the apostolic authority echoing your purposes for all of history future, I pray that we would be greatly strengthened in our faith today. We pray as your word goes forth that it would work in us repentance and faithfulness, that would work in us encouragement and hope, joy and endurance, and Lord, the sober call to tell the truth to others as we seek to walk in a way that is glorifying to you, taking into account, Lord, everything that you've spoken. May you add to our faith understanding this day as we seek to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through the proclamation of his word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. So many things to thank the Lord for and to glorify Him. Among them, answers to prayer, the banquet last night if you attended. Glory to God for gathering so many who were unified in the purpose of raising money for missions. And it was such a joy to be gathered with the saints for that glorious purpose. So thank you for those who attended. Also, a baby was born this week in the Ingebretson household, Ruby Joy, new member of Providence. Just a miraculous answer to prayer. <laughs> Hallelujah. And now we turn to God's Word. And this morning, as we turn to the Scriptures, we're reminded by two things. His revelation in the Word of God and our experience as believers that His care towards us and His love and His steadfast kindness towards His people is abounding, immeasurable, overflowing, and is the hope of our salvation. Turn with me as you're able this morning to Psalm 119, and let's continue in our series, the second Sunday of the month, going through this great acrostic poem in all of literature. We're up to the 16th stanza now, which brings us to the next collection of eight verses, 121 through 128. I've chosen the title under the Hebrew word or letter ayin. The title is The Trial of Oppression. We've noticed a theme, a pattern. In each section, there is a trial or presenting challenge that faces the author. And of course, in each passage, he is reassured and therefore reassures us that the revelation of God, his word, is sufficient for any challenge we might face. Today, the aim of my preaching, therefore, is to inspire the hearer to faithful hope, to inspire us unto faithful hope, the kind of faithful hope that is exhibited and is modeled and proclaimed by the author of this great song. With that introduction and your heart in reverence, bowed in reverence before the Word of God, would you stand as you're able for the reading of the same? 
Listen, as the word is proclaimed to you, Psalm 119, 121 through 128, the Ayin stanza. Here we have God's holy word. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge for good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In stanza 16, under the Hebrew letter Ayin, our author continues crying out to God for salvation in spite of his enemies. His enemies, particularly in this section, are labeled as oppressors, the insolent who oppress him. He implores the Lord under these conditions to rescue him from his oppressors. Each verse of his cry, as we've seen the pattern all through this great song, begins in the original text with the Hebrew letter Ayin. Of course, an acrostic song is one where the beginning of each verse lines up with a corresponding Hebrew letter. Thus, all eight verses in the first stanza begin with the first Hebrew letter, Aleph, and so forth until we get to number 16. And in case you're wondering, this would explain why there are 22 stanzas that corresponds with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Just a little review for you. This, of course, reminds us of the power and the symmetry, the glory, the order, and the authority of God's Word. These things are expressed in multiple ways, not only the truth that is proclaimed through the Scriptures, but oftentimes the form, the, the, uh, the way that it is structured and presented, the utilization of devices like poetry and ordered acrostic, uh, guy, uh, ordered acrostic structures like that of Psalm 119 only further emphasize the beauty, the order, the authority, and the glory, and in this, the theme of this uh, psalm, the sufficiency of our Lord. So our psalmist implores the Lord to rescue him from his oppressors. As he does so, he continues on his journey. We've marked this sort of motif as well. The psalmist is maturing in his faith, and that maturing has included the process of enduring trials. God has used trials and difficulties along the way, just as he does in the life of all believers. We find, in spite of a number of trials now, in fact, uh, 15 of them to be precise, nevertheless, our author's spirit refuses to succumb to weariness or despair. If the Spirit of God is alive and well in you, he will give you the endurance that is necessary to go all the way to the end. And to hear that sound in your ears one day, your resurrected ears, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not on account of your own resolve or your own willpower, but no, on account of the Spirit of God working in you the kind of heart and desire and affections and assurance that is necessary to endure the difficulties of even insolent oppressors. So our psalmist does not grow weary or he, and he does not despair. And the reason he does not is because he has a sufficient source of help in times of trial. In the face of still more hardship, he remains sustained and satisfied in the sufficient means supplied by his Lord and Savior, 
The great theme of Psalm 119 comes to the fore yet again, the sufficiency of the covenant revelation or the word of God. He, the psalmist, makes good use of waiting for answered prayers by nurturing a deeper love, dependence, and appreciation for the covenant revelation of his God, even his laws, his statutes and promises, and so forth. He uses so many synonyms along the way. He identifies himself as a servant of his master, willing to endure whatever is required of him, even as he longs for divine intervention. This stanza contains a sense of suspense. There's a sort of building imminence. There's something about to happen. He knows that the coming of the Lord is near. It may feel like it's distant on the horizon, but he understands that there is a day of reckoning. And on that day, he wants to stand assured that he is in the favor of the Lord. He is waiting for this coming. The prayers of the saints and the insolence of the wicked both serve, in a sense, to hasten that day, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the psalmist recognizes, is according to the covenant terms. That is, the, word, or the structure, the law, the agreement, the, the terms of relationship, if you will, that God has laid out, not only between himself and those who are in him, but also between himself and the rebels who refuse to bow before his word and law. So these ter- or this day of the Lord bears with it thus a great reckoning. It's a reckoning demand according to his terms of covenant, according to the law of God. In this, the singer then takes refuge in the promises and steadfast love of the one true sovereign. In light of this perspective of human weakness and God's ultimacy, the psalmist models sanctified desires or affections for the salvation the promise, the statutes, the testimonies, the law, the commandments, and the precepts of Yahweh. These are the synonyms for God's word or covenant revelation that he utilizes in the 16th stanza. These, the salvation promises, statutes, and so forth of the Lord, are to be treasured more than gold itself. I cannot help but just cross-reference in my own mind that famous passage in the Lord's Prayer, where your treasure is, there your heart will be, I'm sorry, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, I believe, in that portion in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, you'll find in there a relationship that the Lord expounds, our Lord himself, Jesus, between the condition of the heart and that which we value. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The psalmist is holding his heart accountable to value and to keep as precious the word of God. Therefore, his heart is in the right place Upon the day of the Lord's coming, he knows will be soon, especially since the law of the Lord has been broken by so many around him. Thus, we are to also take a cue from his example and to treasure the Lord and his word more than gold itself or any other example of human or of earthly riches. As the love for God's revelation increases, uh, by the way, the psalmist closes with this thought, so does our intolerance for every false way. As the love of the Lord increases, as our appreciation of his holy word uh, grows in our minds, in our hearts, in our actions, in our obedience, so does our intolerance for every false way. I'm sure you sense already a number of applications for this text. Let's touch upon a few as we explore our passage in more detail. I have a heading and three main points today, all having to do with the coming of the Lord. The heading, the Ayin stanza welcomes the coming of the Lord 
according to three things. In verses 121 through 122, the psalmist welcomes the coming of the Lord according to his pledge. Uh, Secondly, the psalmist welcomes the Lord and his coming according to his steadfast love, 123 through 125. And finally, this, this stanza welcomes the coming of the Lord according to his law, 126 through 128. First of all, the coming of the Lord according to his pledge. Welcomed by the psalmist. 121, he sings, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. This pledge is a guarantee or an assurance. Give me your promise that I will be helped and delivered from that which I face. Before he cries out for this in the second verse, he has said in 121 where he's laid out a relationship between faith and faithfulness, I submit. He says, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. I I wonder if you've thought about this. Our faith is strengthened through many different ways, but among them, obedience. Our faith is strengthened in the Lord through our obedience to Him. In other words, there is a relationship between our dealings and the way the Lord deals with us. So far as it is entrusted to us, we should seek to rule what God has given us to be responsible for according to the rules or the ethics of the heavenly kingdom. This righteousness and justice should be treasured and implemented by us. And as we walk in God's ways, so our faith that the Lord will rule according to His ways increases. Modeling divine kingdom ethics in our dealings strengthens our hope in the judgments of God. The psalmist is sought to live his life and to order his affairs. Many think that the psalm was written by David, the great psalmist, and if so, he was likely king at the time. And he's making an appeal, Lord, I have sought to order my reign. I've set up my court according to your laws. I have entrusted those who serve under me, the judges and the magistrates, my generals and those who hear court cases among the people to do what is just and right according to your word. Therefore, I ask you to intervene in a similar fashion, to rule according to your truth and to deliver me from my oppressors. In other words, if the enemies that David, for example, faces, if he is the object of the psalm here, if they are ones who break God's law, then he knows that there is a day where they must answer, be, answer to him. So if David stands in just injustice and unrighteousness, then he will be standing on that day when the Lord brings an accounting for against his enemies. It goes to that theme that we've discussed before, that the safest place to be is to share or to stand with the Lord in his uh, rule and according to his righteousness and to share the Lord's enemies as well to stand with the Lord, and to stand against what he stands against. In Psalm 89, verse 14, another psalmist writes, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know your festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. What does it mean to walk in the light of the face of God? in the light of the face of God, that which he reveals as part and parcel of his nature and character. What is that which is the foundation of his throne, that which is the authoritative force 
that which is central and essential to his being and to his rule, his righteousness, what is good and just and true, his justice, what is appropriate punishment for those who transgress his law, and what is the uh, appropriate deliverance for those who are innocent and so forth. So there is security and assurance found on these things. So when David, as serving as king, for instance, rules according to the law of God, he has reason to be assured that he will, in right standing with the Lord, will stand with him and be on his side when he fights. Choose you this day whom you will serve. The great judge, uh, the great uh, call by Joshua in the day. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now the boldness and the uh, leadership of Joshua in this case was strengthened by his knowledge of the Lord through the ages or through the years even in the wilderness. Jo uh, Joshua had seen that when the people stood with the idols, uh, I, for example, the golden calf and worshipped uh, the golden and, and worshipped in this ecstatic way and, and had uh, sinned before the Lord, when that day of reckoning came and Moses, the anointed servant, came down from the mountain. All who stood with those who worshipped the golden calf were destroyed in many cases or forced to drink that poison water when the idols were crushed and so forth. But those who stood with the Lord stood firm. Likewise, in the day of Korah, we read of this recently because Jude touches upon the rebellion of Korah. There were two places to stand. One was with allegiance to this guy who thought the rule and the hierarchy of God's delegation of authority was unjust. Who are you, Moses? What makes you so special? I'm going to join this Korah guy. We deserve to have as many privileges as anybody else. And we refuse to acknowledge this illegitimate authority of Moses over us. There are two places to stand. With that sentiment over here in the camp of Korah or over here uh, with the Lord and his anointed. I don't understand exactly all of God's ways. Many are a mystery to me, but I have seen the face, or I've seen the face of Moses and that reflective glory shining off of him so much that it freaked us out and we needed a veil because we could not bear to look upon him. You better believe I'm going to follow Yahweh and stand with Moses and then the day of reckoning comes. And what happens? The earth swallows up the rebels. And meanwhile, everyone else lives and worships God in the fear of him recognizing that there is a relationship to where you stand on the right now and where you will stand on the day of the Lord's coming. Have I done what is just and right? If so, then I'm living my life according to God's word and precepts. And here, my faith is strengthened. Lord, let our faithfulness as we seek to follow you build our faith that on that day you will rule rightly and, re and rescue your people. There's further basis for assurance in, in 122 of Psalm 119. Give your servant a pledge for good. Let not the insolent oppress me. The psalmist welcomes the coming of the Lord according to his pledge, according to his promise. This is the basis of his assurance. What is a pledge or a promise? Well, it's a solemn oath sweared that one party will keep his end of the bargain or the covenant. There's a number of places in the scriptures where the Lord makes a pledge. He promises. He commits himself by solemn oath to rule according to his covenant. In Genesis 42, we've observed this pictured in uh, Joseph and his brothers. There are several pledges that are made. Uh, Joseph says, 
I will keep Simeon as a pledge that you return with my younger brother, Benjamin. Uh, Reuben, back at home, pledges his two sons to Jacob and says, I will take Benjamin safely to the man, to the Lord of the land, not knowing that it's his brother Joseph. And so he pledges to his father, his two sons. And from this, we drew a picture. That, and it's this, that if the obligation is not met, the man himself will be the pledge. And we began to see the relationship to the gospel. Our obligation to the Lord is not met. We have fallen short of his glory. And there's no way that we could satisfy our debt to him short of suffering his just wrath forever in hell. If we are to be delivered from the greatest of oppressors, namely the wrath of God to our sin or death itself, which is the wages of our rebellion against the Lord, then the man himself, Jesus Christ, must be our pledge, our promise. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews 7. I believe it's Hebrews 7, 22. And here we have a picture of this very clearly laid out in the work of Jesus. In Hebrews 7, the author is unfolding the glorious fulfillment of the work of Christ and all it represents covenantally, fulfilling the promises of the old in a much better and greater way than any of the former typological priests could ever hope to do. Verse 20, and It was not without an oath, for those who, were formerly, who formerly became priests were made such without, without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath, so he could substitute oath for pledge. By the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The Lord has pledged a man, if you will, a priest, to be, to be crucified in our stead. Verse 22 says, This makes Jesus the guarantor or pledge of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. When the psalmist cries out, welcoming the coming of the Lord according to his pledge, the fulfillment of this is, comes to its climax in Christ alone. Give your servant a pledge for good. This is a cry of messianic hope. What better pledge for good would, would there ever be than the Son of God, the perfect spotless Lamb, the second person of the Trinity dying in our place? Let not the insolent oppress me, let me not be over. Let me be overrun by my enemies, but return. But come to me, and come to me in deliverance. Come to me in steadfast love, and may I be reassured by a pledge, your promise of good to me. Christ is our pledge. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. He is the promise of God that has the power in and of Himself in His death on Calvary to deliver us. Now along the way. God gave further pledges. Every time the prophet spoke, every time the word of God was inspired on the lips and the pen of those who were commissioned to proclaim his revelation, the psalmist's prayer was answered. Give your servant a pledge for good. Later, Isaiah would write that the Lord will come and on his day, he will, do, he will work a decisive reckoning, saving the remnant, preserving them by the power of his right hand. I was thinking of Isaiah 40 in relationship to this text where there is a promise that the Lord himself will be the great shepherd and will deliver his sheep. It says in verse 11, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. 
He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young, who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with his span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, verse 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust. So the dust on the scales, behold, he takes the coastlands up like fine dust. And it goes on this way. What is this? This is a pledge to the believer of old that the Lord is more powerful than his oppressors or enemies. This is a promise that somehow, some way, God will carry his little ones, his remnant, those who trust in him, his flock, like a good shepherd will. And this is a pledge, this is a promise that his omnipotence, his power, and his majesty is such that no one can threaten his sheep. Not the nations of the earth, they're a drop in the bucket. Not any one of the powerful enemies who gather against him in their rebellion and seek to uh, declare, like Psalm 2 says, their sovereignty over the Lord. He laughs in the heavens, our good shepherd does, defends his own, and gives us the pledge fulfilled in Christ ultimately, that he will grant unto us deliverance. So we, like the psalmist, can welcome the coming of the Lord if we have received the reassurance of his pledge and his promise that in Christ we are hid, in Christ we are delivered, in Christ is our salvation. Hallelujah. Second major point today, Dain Stanza welcomes the coming of the Lord according to his pledge, verses 121 and 122, and secondly, according to his steadfast love, 123 and 125. I've touched upon this example several times, but I believe it bears repeating. Notice it was the same coming of the Lord in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and where Lot and Abraham both received the angels. In one, it was a welcomed feast of steadfast love spread before Lot and Abram. But in the other case, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a day of utter destruction and reckoning and the judgments of God. The same coming of the Lord. But depending on where you stood in relationship with Him, in covenant with Him, it either spelled your doom or it spelled your uh, reconciliation at table fellowship with God Almighty. This is the kind of cry, or this is the, the assurance and the cry that undergirds the psalmist asking the Lord or welcoming the Lord's coming according to his steadfast love. He says in verse 123, My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. You may have noticed that there are three times in this stanza where the psalmist identifies himself as the servant of the Lord. In this, he has submitted to the Lord in his salvation. He has submitted to the Lord's promises, his statutes, his testimony and his law, his commandments and his precepts. So the posture that he takes in prayer and worship is one of a humble subject, trusting in the one who is his sovereign, his Lord and his Savior. He does not argue or use leverage from the point of his own pride or his own 
uh, rights or what he deserves. No, but he appeals to the Lord on the basis of grace alone. In the Old Covenant, <coughs> and especially in the Psalms, this term steadfast love is a stand-in for the grace alone re- uh, a promise of salvation or the gospel revealed in the New Testament. Thus he asks that the Lord would deal with him according to this, not according to the justice that his sin deserves, but according to the steadfast one of one forgiven and atoned. Lord, deal with me according to your steadfast love. This cry to the Lord is attended by different desires or by specific desires. In 123, he makes reference to the eyes as a poetic illustration of the deepest longings of the soul. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. What do our eyes long for? There's that phrase that we've remarked several times in Genesis of the lifting up of the eyes. Lot, when he was walking, not according to the spirit, but according to the flesh, lifted up his eyes to the fertile valleys of the plains. And that got him into all this trouble we mentioned before. His neighbors were the hell-deserving Sodomites and Gomorrahites, if you will. But he lifted up his eyes and that deep longing of his soul for the wealth that the fertile valleys of the cities of the plains promised, um, you know, the wickedness of that area notwithstanding got him into all kinds of trouble. The lesson Lot learned and that we need to learn is that better than fine gold, better than the promise of wealth of the fertile fields of the flesh is the law, the statutes and the promises of God. Abraham lifted up his eyes as the Lord directed his attention to the promised land. He said, look, I will give you this land, the Lord says, and to the physical eye, it may not be as appealing. Perhaps the fields are not as rich. Perhaps it took more wandering and more time, you know, traveling to feed his flocks and so forth. Yet he had the assurance, the word of God. He had the visitation of the Lord himself. He had divine revelation that this land held out promise for him. Which is better, the promise of the riches of the world or the promises of the word of God? Well, the psalmist holds himself accountable to the Lord, even in his desires. He says, my eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. There's a good test we can always do. What do I deeply long for? What, is the, what are the desires of my heart? What do I spend most of my time thinking about or much of my energy pursuing? This idea of the longing of the eyes could also refer to tears of anguish. That the psalmist has cried to the Lord, my eyes long for your salvation. In part, he could be saying as well, the poetry could encompass this idea of, I've shed tears of anguish in my oppressors, longing for your salvation. But in my cry, I have hoped in you and in your word. The longing of the eyes, tears of anguish, our soul's attention, that which holds and captivates our emotions, our deepest wishes and affections, the lifting up of the eyes, Watchful anticipation, where are all these things fixed for us as his people? Do we have that same messianic anticipation today as the psalmist had then, longing for the coming of the Lord according to his pledge and according to his steadfast love? We too have a coming of the Lord yet on the horizon. The Lord will come in victory at the end of time. The second coming of the Lord where that decisive final blow to every last enemy will be manifest in time. And all his people, the fullness of the great harvest, all of the elect ransomed by their good shepherd and then gather in by the angels of the harvest will rejoice in him to him forever. 
This is the future that we have to look for, a coming of the Lord. Are our desires fixed on God's purposes for the future? In spite of all the difficulty and challenge and the oppression that we face right now, do we keep this perspective of God's ultimate glory and victory in mind? There was a man who modeled this kind of affection in Luke chapter 2. And just about every Christmas, I'd like to mention his him because he's such a good example of messianic anticipation. This, of course, would be the aged Simeon in the temple. When Jesus came into the temple, he was young, just eight days old when he first arrived. Verse 27, we pick up on this story. He came into the temple, in, in, excuse me, in the spirit into the temple, speaking of Simeon. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see this profession of faith, this exclamation, this worship song uttered from Simeon on that day was preceded by desires, a hope for God's promises to be fulfilled. O Lord, that I may see your coming and your glory in my lifetime. And because his desires were nurtured accordingly to the promises and pledge of the Lord through the scriptures and ages that that were delivered through the ages past, walking in the Spirit thus, Simeon recognized the coming of the Lord. His eyes were drawn to his hope of salvation, even though he was just eight days old in his arms. And he also recognized that this child held forth a light of revelation that is the truth of God revealed to all peoples, Gentiles and the Jews, for the glory of your people, Israel, all who would be in covenant with him through the hope of God's coming in Jesus Christ. The psalmist celebrates this kind of desire. He endorses it. He models it. He exemplifies it. Eyes trained to that which deserves our soul's attention. The salvation, the promise, the statutes, the testimonies, the law, the commandment, and the precepts of the Lord. He cries out, deal with me according to your steadfast love. Verse 124, deal with your servant according to your hesed in the Hebrew, steadfast love, and teach me your statutes. The Lord's dealings. <clears throat> in Psalm 25, 6 through 7, David writes, that, or he cries out that the Lord would not remember the sins of his youth, instead, that the Lord would remember his mercy. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my, my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of of your goodness, O Lord. How can the psalmist, including David, be assured that when the Lord comes, it won't be in response to his sin, but it would be in accordance with his steadfast love? Well, the Day of Atonement pictured the hope that the believer had in this regard. When the priest, symbolically a representative of the people of God, laid his hands on that animal, two things were happening. One, the sins of the people were laid on that beast. And secondly, that beast was driven away into the land, thus symbolizing that the punishment that the people deserved would be taken by a substitute 
And that substitute would bear the wrath of God on their behalf. And so this would be the basis of dealing according to steadfast love. The cry of the psalmist presupposes an acceptable sacrifice to satisfy the terms of covenant. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love, not according to my sins. This parallel language in Psalm 25, 6-7 makes an appeal to the Lord through the mouth of David to remember according to the Lord's mercy. Come, O Lord, we welcome your coming, but come to us according to your steadfast love. The alternative would be the Lord comes and now you must answer for your transgressions and sins. This is why the proper understanding of the gospel is so important. When we confess our sins, when we admit that we have broken God's law, and when we trust Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins, we have here and only here the basis for the prayer, for the answer to this prayer. Lord, come and deal with me according to your steadfast love. Deal with your servant according to your mercy and not according to my sins. David expressed this, as does the author of Psalm 119, and the whole of Scripture is building towards the fulfillment of how this can be possible in the work of Jesus Christ. Desires, dealings, and under the second point, disciplines. The psalmist continues to orient his life and his desires and his disciplines by the Word of God. He continues by saying in verse 125, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. He says in verse 124, after crying out that the Lord would deal with him according to his mercy to teach him his statutes. So the psalmist is resolved to be disciplined, to understand and order his life, commit to his understanding the statutes and the testimonies of the Lord, to become an expert in the law of God, to become a diligent student, to read and to retain with comprehension what God has spoken. I wrote down this phrase, and I think it's appropriate in light of what's described here. We are saved by grace and taught by law. The psalmist is saying in this, in this song, in this portion of stanza, that he is saved by grace, your mercy, your steadfast love, yet he is taught by law. And this really is the calling of the believer. In theology, in Reformed circles, we call it sometimes the three purposes of the law. Number one is the civil use of the law. The law is a teacher for rebellious society of what God requires, His righteousness and His commandments. And thus it stands as a restraint to restrain the course of evil by laying forth appropriate consequences for breaking his law. That's the civil use. The law is a teacher for society of what God requires, what he forbids, and consequences accordingly. And without the law of God, at least in its, uh, somewhat in its form, a society will ultimately fall apart. To the degree that there's any order in our own society, we still have in, underneath somewhere this consciousness, this social consciousness, that thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill without consequences. And though his law is broken, the, uh, often we see also with this a fraying and an undoing of our society. Why? Because we have refused to join the psalmist in his desire to be taught and to treasure the testimonies and the statutes of the Lord. We are saved by grace, but we are taught by law. The third use of the law is uh, for believers, or I should say the second use of the law, just to name all three, is to lead us in salvation to the knowledge of our own particular sins. When the righteousness of Christ 
and what God requires, be thou perfect as I am perfect, for instance, is held up before us. We see this mirror showing us where we have fallen short of the Lord's glory. Therefore, the second use of the law is to teach us that we are sinners individually and that we must repent and turn to Him. And then the third use of the law perhaps most directly corresponds with the heart of our psalmist here. And it teaches us how to glorify and worship the Lord, to live in light of Him, and to live a life in accordance and conformed and pleasing to our God. What shall we do now that we are a believer? Well, we learn the answer to this question by loving and applying the salvation, the promise, the statutes, the testimony, the law, the commandments, and the precepts of our God. We are a people saved by grace and taught by law. You know, shame on us or the modern Christian church which would set aside the law of God and its usefulness, its purpose. We should have a heart. We should cry that the Lord would change our hearts if we've avoided, if we've denied, or if we've just ignorant to the glory of all of God's holy scripture, the whole counsel of the Lord. We should ask that we could join with the psalmist and relate to him when he dedicates, dedicates what is it, like 256, 276, excuse me, verses to his appreciation for the whole counsel of God including his testimony, statutes, and precepts. So the psalmist, again, second major point, he welcomes the coming of the Lord, not just according to his pledge, but according to his steadfast love. And in, alongside this, he is determined to nurture desires, disciplines uh, for the Lord, and to cry out that the Lord would deal with him according to his steadfast love. The final uh, portion of our text today, verses 126 through 128. The psalmist also welcomes the coming of the Lord, indeed, according to his law. Verse 126, It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. So what time is it? With reverence, reference to our attitude as a people, to the law of God. You know, we, discernment is required to know where we stand before the Lord and thus the warnings that we ought to offer to the people. The Lord himself says that, or he condemns the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his time. They uh, build themselves or they bragged about their understanding and expertise in the law of God. Yet the Lord condemned them because they failed to read the times. They did not recognize the Messiah when he came because they didn't realize what time it was. They didn't take time to consider according to what the word of God had spoken, that they themselves were arrogant and had set themselves up as a law unto themselves and had presumed to rule according to their preferences instead of bowing as the servant of the Lord before his word and living accordingly. There was a small subset of the people at that time that were faithful, and they did recognize the Messiah, like Simeon in the temple. But for the vast majority of them, they joined the throngs and the crowds and the popular and the the uh, basically the democratic will of the people when Christ was on trial, and eventually shouted, "Crucify him! Crucify him! His blood be on us and our children." What time was it at that time? The law of the Lord was broken. His Messiah was rejected. The Word in flesh was spit upon and was crucified. He was tortured and abused and murdered unjustly in this horrible act at that time. What time was it? It was time for the judgments of God. 
His law had been broken. So at the time of Christ's coming, for those who welcomed Him, for those who were trained through their love of the Lord and through their faith in His promises and pledge, to welcome the Messiah with open heart and open arms, it was the most amazing time of all. But for those who broke His law and demonstrated this in the crucifixion of the Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, God's own Son, it was time for the Lord to act. And so history records the cataclysmic destruction of Jerusalem shortly thereafter. Within a generation or so, in A.D. 70, the place was in flames, and the oppressors overran the place, and they, as the arm of God's justice, delivered a blow of judgment and reckoning. Because it was time for the Lord to act, His law had been broken. That's just one example in history. But there are so many. We've mentioned a couple others. You know, the Pharaoh with high hand and a proud heart uh, lifts himself up above the knowledge of God and conscripts the people of the covenant into slavery. And there they are languishing under this oppressive regime for hundreds of years. But the people who were faithful, they knew that the Lord had prophesied, even to Abraham, that his people would be in bondage and captivity and exile, so to speak, for 400 plus years. But then when the fullness of the wickedness of the Amalekites was complete, they would receive deliverance from their oppressors. The law, God's law had been broken. It was time for him to act. He would raise up a savior, if you will. He would raise up a deliverer in Moses, and the people would be then brought safely into the promised land according to the covenant. So faith that the Lord would come according to his law was the heart cry of the faithful at that time. Yes, they suffered under the injustice and the arbitrary and the ungodly rule of Pharaoh. But the time was ticking. The time when the Lord would intervene and he would show this king his wonders. And in ten demonstrations of his sovereign authority, these, the voice of the rebel would be shut up and his own son would be taken by the angel of death until he recognized the sovereignty of Yahweh. This is the cry of God's people in the in-between time. It is time for you to act, O Lord. Your law has been broken. We do pray, Lord, that you would show forth your glory. If our nation and people surrounding us, this wicked regime does not repent, we do pray that you would show forth your glory in bringing a day of reckoning and judgment upon those who refuse to bow and be servant to your statutes, your testimony, and your laws. Of course, in the meantime, we pray that God would bring repentance and that people would turn to Him. But we must understand that there is a time coming where everyone must stand before the Lord and give an account for their actions. It will come for our nation if we do not repent. It has done, God has done so every single other time in history. What makes us think that we are any exception? Just our proud arrogance. What time is it? We must recognize that actionable offenses against the Holy God are such, even in our day, that if we don't turn from Him, if we don't turn from this doubling down in wickedness, even in legislation in our own state, that we are wishing upon ourselves judgment from the Almighty. We stand guilty of breaking His holy law and setting up ourselves as idols in His place and our own ideas and the humanist rebellion that is so popular in our hour and that secular disregard for the never-changing, failing, withering, or fading Word of God. And there comes a time when the Lord will return according to His law. It is important for us to remember this and to affirm it, 
Do not soft pedal the truth or back down from it. Because for those whose hearts are being prepared by the Spirit to repent, they need to hear that warning that there is a day coming. Repent or else. The psalmist continues to nurture affections in the wake of this imminent coming. He says, verse 127, As against the unbeliever and rebel, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Spiritual war is never successfully waged by shrinking back from the commandments of our God. Spiritual war involves loving, affirming, and His people doubling down on what God has spoken. The commandments of the Lord, His ethics, His morals, His righteousness, that which He says is holy, that which He says is wicked, is not popular in our day. And in order to try to win some foolish popularity contest, it has become a strategy in the so-called church these days to downpedal or to minimize or to sugarcoat that which God has laid out in His Scriptures. But we are not to do this. This is to lose the spiritual battle. When the Lord's enemies are bold to proclaim what they believe to be true, His people are to stand against them and to demonstrate their hatred for every false way and their faithfulness to the Lord, His commandments, His precepts, His law, and His testimonies. That is to say, the more we love the Lord, the more intolerance we nurture for evil. And of course, someone might ask, well, doesn't this make you the arrogant Christian um, who hates everyone and thus the condemnation of the ungodly has some merit? And the truth is, no, that's not the case at all. Because if we understand the gospel, we know ourselves to be wicked, hell-deserving sinners, but by the grace of God, His steadfast love and mercy, according to His pledge of Jesus Christ, where we... Uh, we would not be saved. And so we, uh, when we're speaking to the individual, we, say, we uh, tell them that there is a way for them to repent and to turn and to believe. But when we speak to the ideas of our culture, it, uh, there should be no quarter. We should take no prisoners. We should tell the truth and blatantly so. I was recently called to task in kind of a chance meeting where I was uh, using the instrument of satire to um, basically show the ridiculousness of the uh, self-styled identity of virtues of our day. So I, I proclaimed at a family get-together that Nikki and I were going to raise our kids' species neutral just in case they wanted to identify as a sea lion someday. And so, um, and basically what I was doing is poking fun at this notion that the person, any person, just on their subjectivity can say, no, I'm no longer a man, I'm going to be a woman, and then all of society is obligated to affirm me and my delusion. And what, of course, is challenged in this, you know, these ideas of today is God's sovereignty as creator to establish according to his created order who we are. And the unbeliever today says, no, I have the right to define for myself my own identity. And your creator, the God of the universe, says, no, male and female, I have created them. And this is not up for review. Only the rebel, only the self-deluded, ridiculous individual would claim otherwise. Well, when I said this, of course, it was not necessarily well-received. I was called to task. You know, you might offend somebody. And so I, what I tried to do is draw a distinction. And I don't, I'm not sure how fruitful this conversation was. But my point was, if I'm talking to an individual and they have a real issue that they're dealing with, we're talking on the level of one soul to another. And it would be wrong, I believe, for me to make fun of them personally. However, we need to take a cue from the psalmist and from the prophets and from the word of God. 
and not to soft pedal the truth, but to call out as wicked and rebellious, ridiculous and absurd, self-destructive and abusive to God's holy order, everything that the enemy is trying to do to corrupt what he has said, what he has established, and what he has spoken. So we take no quarter, we take no prisoners, we call out the enemy, we show it to be ridiculous for what it is, according to scripture, but then we hold out compassion for the individual and urge them to repent. We need to tell the truth. This is how we wage spiritual war, by standing firmly upon what God has spoken. His commandments we should love. We should not be ashamed of them. What does Paul say about the gospel when he's faced by secular enemies all around him? What does he say when he stands at Mars Hill, that place where the erudite and the learned and the philosophies of his day would challenge ideas and they would stroke their chins and say by this author and that, I don't think you, what you say has merit. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Imagine having a nuclear bomb in your backpack and then you come into contact with somebody on the street and they have a rubber band gun and they say, you know, I'm going to shoot you with this rubber band gun. And do you have, are you afraid of that individual? You have a nuclear bomb in your backpack. The enemy tells us, you know, the culture speaks to us that we should be ashamed of what we believe. And we have no place in polite society. And the Christian and his old, archaic, ancient views should be marginalized from polite company. But we, in the gospel, have a nuclear bomb in our backpack. We have the source, we have the source and authority in the word of God upon which all of life in the future is judged. And we serve a savior who is sovereign and leads a chain of his uh, both those who he has conquered in the gospel and those who he has defeated in judgments behind him on that final day. We have Jesus Christ who conquered death and rose on the third day and ascended in all his pre-incarnate glory before the Father and received as his inheritance because of his act uh, in redemption, the title deed to every nation of the earth, as I'm fond of saying. And so when we realize this, we can understand that we have every reason to be confident and bold even though we do face oppressors. And where can that confidence and boldness grow, or how can it grow? Well, when we love the Lord's commandments, treasure them above fine gold and gold. Commandments of the Lord, they're worthless, the world tells us. No, you need to embrace the fine gold of uh, all of these other ideas. And we say, no, we consider your precepts to be right, and we hate every false way. The psalmist highlights the binary nature of godliness. That is, there are some things that are wicked and there are some things that are holy. The enemy tries to blur those lines and erase the distinctions. And the Lord says, no, all of the law, even the ceremonies of old, had to do with consecration. To teach you that holiness means set apart. It means ordered according to God's way. It means judged right according to his precepts and the standards which never fail, never change. And so we must uphold these kinds of things. And so where is your heart today? As we bring this message to a close, can we sing with sincerity this song and know that our desires and our disciplines are in accordance with the Lord? If the answer is no, it could be that you have a problem before the Lord and that you stand worthy of his judgments. The very first place to start if we need to come into conformity with the heart of the psalmist it's to cry out to the Lord that upon Jesus Christ, our pledge of salvation, his dealings with us might be according to his steadfast love. If we as a people, if we as an individual, 
do not truly love his salvation, his promise, his statutes, and his testimonies. If we have treated his law lightly, if we have broken his commandments, if we have not taken seriously his precepts, then we deserve his judgments. And his coming will not be according to his steadfast love, because we have no pledge. It will be according to his law, and the wages of breaking that law, sin, is death. But if we trust Jesus Christ as the one crucified in our place, who took the judgment that that law-breaking deserved, then we can join the heart of the psalmist, even in a day of oppression, looking forward to the coming of the Lord. And if we stand with the Lord, if Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Sovereign, if you are His subject, if you are His servant, if you love truly as a result a growing desire by sanctification, that the salvation promise, statutes, testimonies, law, commandment, and precepts of the Lord, then when he comes, it will be according to his steadfast love. And the day of the Lord will be a glorious family reunion. And on that great final day in his second coming, we'll be caught up with the Lord and welcomed into perfect fellowship forever and sit down at festal shout and table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this is the binary way that history is ordered and all peoples according to the word of God. So as you consider where you stand today, do so in light of what he has spoken that I urge you, if you fall short, repent and turn to Christ. And if you stand with him today, pray that he would encourage you to stand all the stronger by means of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the assurance that it contains for us, your people. Lord, I pray for those who may feel weak and weary under the oppression of our hour, that we be strengthened according to your word. As we hear it spoken, as we read it, as we ponder its ways, Lord, as we meditate on its precepts in the course of the week, May your people be strengthened and encouraged to stand in the day when our faith may be challenged. For the unbeliever in the hearing of this message today, if there are any, I pray that they would find in Jesus Christ their pledge, their promise of hope. That you might deal with them not according to your law, but according to steadfast love as they trust their Savior to die in their place, be crucified for their sins. Thank you, Jesus, for these assurances that you've given us by your work on Calvary. Thank you, Father, for your word that reveals you in truth. I pray that you would write it on the tables of our hearts this day, that we might grow in obedience of the faith among the nations. In the name of Jesus, amen.